Hello, this is Brian Brown. We have a special treat for you in this episode, a conversation that I moderated held at our 2019 Imagination Redeemed Conference, featuring Hans Bursma of Regent College, John Skillen of Gordon College, and Junius Johnson of Baylor University. The conversation occurred in the context of a larger event narrative that dealt with art for corporate worship or sacred art, art for spiritual formation and the life of the church, and art intended for a non-Christian audience. Between the three categories, we covered really every conceivable type of art. This particular conversation was towards the beginning of the event and focused on sacred art. Here's a bit of context. The world outside the sanctuary has its own rhythms, its own ways of telling people what matters. So for a thousand years and more, the church fought back with its own rhythms and the art to undergird them. From the entire church year down to every moment of a prayer or a Sunday morning service, Christians ordered their lives not by January and June, work and sleep, but by feasting and fasting, by thanksgiving and prayer. And they built their sanctuaries not as hollow shells to surround people engaged in some invisible activity, but as living testimonials to God in the visible work of His people. God's people are physical beings made in the image of a God who validated that existence by himself joining it. And so their worship and their encounter with God occurred in the visible realm. The church building, the carvings of stone and wood, the paintings, the music were themselves worshipers. Every detail ordered to the glory of God and the love of his people. Sacred art tells the tale of the ideal and awakens in us the desire to strive for it, to unite ourselves with it. This is not preparation for real life. This is as real as we can bear. But sacred art is largely a lost art today, as churches in recent decades and even centuries chose to either neglect the arts altogether or make their art forms look as much as possible like those of the world around them. In this conversation, we explore how that happened, what we lost along the way, and what churches can do if they want to bring the arts back into corporate worship. This is the Redeemed Imagination Podcast, a podcast of the Anselm Society on reenchanting the church. Let's do this. <laughs> well, Hans, I love the way that uh, you wound down your talk with that line about when, when early Christians sang their psalms, they enjoyed the beauty of Christ. When early Christians read their psalms, they learned the truth of Christ. When early Christians lived their psalms, they participated in the virtue of Christ. Because of each of those corresponds so beautifully to one of our acts this weekend. And tonight, I wanted us to spend a few more minutes enjoying the beauty of Christ. But of course, if we're going to do that, we have to get the elephant out of the room or the elephant in the room acknowledged or something, which is that in the word and sacrament, corporate Sunday morning sense of the word, what is worship? When we're talking about worship, the rest of this conversation, what do we mean when we say that? You know, I find myself, once I learned the simple meaning of the word liturgy, which is the work of the people, most of you know that, in the plural. So it also means something that one person can't do alone. And now I'm thickly in the Anglican tradition of Christian faith, and that's what we speak of Sunday morning worship as, you know, the liturgy. So that now is the word that first comes to my mouth. Uh, it helps me because I think that our worship is the work of the people. And it's helpful to know it. This was liberating for me that the worship we were doing was not dependent or was not the function of my own present emotional 
spiritual engagement with that worship. And when I didn't feel the burden of having to generate the proper attitudes for worship, it actually helped me do the work with the people. And that has always helped me then allow my emotional engagement to come along. So that's my first thing that I think about. It's not that I'm uncomfortable with the word worship, but it means things more generally than something that we are called to do as a fundamental work of the church that we are when we gather together. I really appreciate those comments. I generally avoid the word worship, not because it's not a good word. St. Paul uses the word, although in a slightly different sense than in which we usually use it. But I often avoid the word worship because of the connotations that it has, the way that you're putting it as an emotionally charged performance. And that's not how I understand uh, what's going on in the Sunday morning worship service. And so I, I avoid the term worship for the most part. It's associated with music, with emotions with music. And I think worship properly understood is something broader. I really like the way that you introduced worship or liturgy um, in your opening comments this evening. It reminded me of Alexander Schmiemann. The liturgy or the worship service is about us entering into the heavenly places. It's the place where the, the church service is the time and the place where the veil between heaven and earth is really, really thin. We're really entering into the heavenly places. When we reenact, when we remember, we're not just thinking of something else. No, that quote-unquote something else is being made present here. So we are now in the heavenly places, and we function as priests taking our lives, taking the entire cosmos, and bringing it before God when we come to the altar. Alexander Schmiemann has this beautiful book, right? Just been republished by St. Vladimir's right. Seminary Press um, for the life of the world, which you all either have read or will soon read because you should. <laughs> Homework. We all agree. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> well, and I really agree with what you're, you guys are saying as well. For me, when I start to think about worship, I think about, I would look at the acts that we do in the liturgy, which are themselves based upon discernible movement within the book of Psalms across the five portions of the book of Psalms. And what types of things do we do? We confess our sin. That's an act of worship. Can we confess who God is and glorify God in word and song? That's an act of worship. We read the word of God corporately and publicly. That is an act of worship. We ruminate on the word of God, read, mark, learn, inwardly digest. That's an act of worship. We commune with the body of Christ and the Eucharist. We bring new believers into the body of believers through baptism, right? All of these things are acts of worship. And I think what that does for me is it underscores a false duality that I would want to get past, which is the sense that there's worship and there's other stuff. Because actually the entire point, the reason humans exist at all is to worship God. That's both God's greatest good and our greatest good. And it's our joy that those things coincide. And so we don't have to choose, are we going to serve or are we God or ourselves? We will find our best good by serving God, right? So what the Sunday morning is trying to do is not be the place where this is where now we can finally get to go worship God and do the thing we're supposed to do. Sunday morning is supposed to be training us to gradually convert all of our lives to look like that. There we can get a concentrated feel of what worship looks like so that we can then begin to bring that into other areas of our lives. And I would feel that Christian worship is consummated in heaven when worship is no longer something 
everything that we do, but it's everything mm-hmm. that we do. Not because we only yeah. sing and play harps in heaven, but because all the various things that it's possible for us to do are done unto the Lord. Mm-hmm. The corporate worship setting, the liturgical setting, though, has an advantage in all of that. That's the one chance where, at least in theory, everyone is paused from everything else and is actually focused on doing it. And in that sense, as bad as we may be at doing it in that context, we're much worse at doing it every, all the rest of the time. Yeah. And one of the things I love about Schmemann, of course, is his emphasis on exactly what you just said. If you're doing corporate worship right, it must bleed into everything else over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, from an artistic standpoint, you see this a lot in the church fathers. There's a, because they're putting so much, paying so much attention to exactly what we do in that context, because it is so important, because it is the one time you've got a captive audience. You see them paying the same amount of attention to the arts that are included in that. And you see not only art being created for corporate worship throughout the early centuries of the church, but art forms being developed specifically for that purpose. And there's a tendency, I think, with the modern mind to think of that as restrictive, although go to almost any church and there's only a couple of art forms allowed in. If you're a visual artist at a typical praise and worship type church, for example, they probably don't know what to do with your visual art. Many of you have shared those stories with me. So there's this consistent idea throughout history, no matter what your tradition is, no matter what denomination, no matter what point in time, that certain forms of art are better suited to corporate worship than others, which in some sense means that nine tenths or more of the artists currently in this room are currently practicing art forms church fathers might have deemed inappropriate for corporate worship. Your thoughts? Sometimes. <laughs> so, for example, um, it was uh, Clement who says, I don't think it's consistent with good practice or evangelical discipline for actors to receive the Eucharist. <laughs> if you were an actor, <laughs> then you were obviously morally bankrupt and outside of the Christian form of life. <laughs> Is that what the kind of thing that you're thinking? No, he will. No, okay. no, he so, wants. To... <laughs> yes, let's let's all think of a story like that. Uh, uh, look, I'll take a stab at it. Um, so, I don't think that it's the case that any form of art, whether it be music, visual, or whatever, is by its very nature excluded from worship. If you just think about it analogously to the Christian life, you know, no culture, no form of life is excluded from the Christian because what the gospel does is it comes into wherever you are, whether you're a Pharisee, a tax collector, a prostitute, whatever, Christ comes to you and he says, whatever you were, that's not what you're going to be. And I'm going to take what you have been and I'm going to work that into something new. And so that's the incarnational and sacramental thrust of our faith is that everything material, which includes our lives, are matter for God to transform into his holy sacraments. Right. Now the problem is we bring our own thoughts about various art forms into worship as well. And so some art forms might be difficult or perhaps even impossible to use at a certain time by certain people because of the associations they bring to it. I know that I had the experience after we sang whatever hymn has been set to the tune of Oh to Joy, where a very famous scholar whom you would recognize came to me afterwards and said, you know, can't believe we sang that pagan hymn in our church service, right? Because it's, of course, it's not written to God. It's written to joy and Buddha hype and all these other sorts of things. And I said to him, you know, I used to feel that way, but I've sort of 
you know, we, the church has been baptizing secular art since the very beginning. This is one of the things that we do. A lot of the dear old Baptist hymns that he would have us sing instead of that, right? Those, those melodies were not dear old Baptist melodies originally. They came from other places. Uh, yeah, exactly right. So, but they've been not used in that way for long enough that we can start to use them, right? Mm. And so then the question I think at that point becomes, what is the churches, especially the types of folks who are in this room and you go back to your churches, hey, there's people over there. Hi, guys. Um, what do you, <laughs> how do you push the line on this? How do you help to not just respond to what the sensibilities are, but to shape the sensibilities so that they grow and are capable of receiving more? A couple of things come to mind in connection with your question. One is you talk about restrictions and people feeling restricted sometimes with regard to certain art forms. Restrictions can be either good or bad. Any jazz musician can only you know, engage in creativity because there are certain restrictions that he or she knows very well and can work with. Mm -hmm. So Christian art in the liturgical setting functions within a certain tradition. Uh, for example, the tradition of iconography. You mentioned one example, right? which in the tradition has very particular rules. Now you can't just write any sort of icon. No, icons have to be written in a particular fashion. It functions similarly, I think, analogously in connection with music, painting, whatever kind of art forms the Christian church has used through history. Um, in principle, I think those restrictions are good. It's those restrictions that make our creativity and the development of the further development of the tradition possible. Sometimes, Especially artists, I suspect, and not knowing that from the inside, seeing I'm not an artist at all. But I can imagine an artist becoming impatient with restrictions that are there because I've got all this creativity that I need to let go in some fashion, and people are not appreciative of it, or at least insufficiently <laughs> appreciative of it. The other side of the coin to that, however, is that we need patience with the tradition and with the restrictions of the tradition because they are what has given birth to the situation um, that the church currently has liturgically, and they are what enables that liturgy to develop further. If we're iconoclastic, ironically, right, as artists, if we're iconoclastic with regard to the inherited art forms, we may actually not be able to allow art in the church to continue to develop. In other words, the tradition can't develop if we're too impatient with the restrictions. Now, that's one thing I want to say. The other thing that came to mind is that nothing in church is performance. So a pastor who draws attention to himself all the time is a real problem in my eyes because it's not about him. It's about the person that he represents and for whom he speaks. Now, that doesn't make the person and who he is and how he acts unimportant. It makes it all the more important. I'm simply saying here that it's not about a performance of the pastor or the priest. Neither is it about a performance of an organist or whoever, right? any kind of artist. So those things always have to be kept in mind, I think, with whatever is happening. Whatever happens in terms of art needs to facilitate our entry into the life of God. If it hinders that, get rid of it. If it serves it, use it. You know, I want to defer mainly to these two because that question is really what I'll be speaking tomorrow morning, and I neither want to say the same thing twice or so, so that's why I'll be quiet here. I guess I, I'll, I'll, I'll want to emphasize that 
even in the use of the arts, and I'm going to say probably that's not such, it's too broad. I'm questioning that word. Mm. But the use of the arts in the liturgy proper are really more diverse than we think. So um, there's a lot of places in which the arts will work. I have to say, to understand that the notion between what we think of as art and craft things was simply is a modern phenomenon and it wasn't at work. And I would like to say that yeah, certainly in the Catholic tradition, and there were so many objects that were all equally important because they were the vessels of doing the work. And that means the chalices, the everything used in the liturgy, altar cloths, vestments, everything having to do with the church year. And then I'd like to point out that even the altar pieces, which were just fundamental for the backdrop, as I'll say tomorrow, of the Eucharist, we need to see those as not decoration or even as optional. They were part of the furniture of doing our work. So they do come with generic requirements. There were li these limitations you've spoken to. But as a whole, there was immense variety and opportunity for a variety of skills to be at work in all of the artistic performance, but that's the wrong word. So what you're saying is through the Reformation, we've actually lost a lot of... Yeah, I am saying that, okay? That's right. Uh, I'm implying that is the case, yeah. it seems to me. And then, you know, say the use of the arts, we're talking the liturgy now, but, you know, for fun, I said this one is stuck Clement and the actors, but the arts were also used differently in different modes as a way of amplifying what happened in the Eucharist in the world around us. So that the tradition of sacred theater, which uh, was the tradition that Shakespeare grew out of, say that was a matter of taking the lectionary really in the context of the church year out to more ordinary public places. And therefore there was a rich presence of theater not in the church as a building or in the liturgy, but it was taken out. And I think we can say that of lots of the other arts. Well, I, okay, two follow-up questions. One, sorry, I think I'm losing my mic. There you go. One, Philip Reichen wrote a piece a few years back on the Gospel Coalition, I think, on how to drive artists out of your church. Yeah, that's a good um, Which is really good. And it was funny, Father Matt, uh, one of our board members, and I were, were looking at this and, and noticing that almost everything that was in so it was things like, um, Demand that artists have all the answers, not just the questions. Value artists only as artists. Don't pay them for their work. Things like that. But we noticed actually a lot of the things that he said were great ways to either drive artists out or make them feel uncomfortable or create an unhealthy environment for artists. Probably eight out of every 10 would also apply to pastors. So going back to what you were saying about the pastor who draws attention to himself. It was remarkable how similar the situations were. And one of the challenges that we run into a lot, there are many artists who have had a bad experience with a pastor at some point, right? They're going to hell because they read Harry Potter or, or the pastor maybe just doesn't know what to do with them. But um, I think I said this to you, Father Ken, in conversation once, I don't think I have yet met a pastor who woke up in the morning and said, I wonder how I can crush someone's artistic dreams today. Um, <laughs> 
But you typically, in, in the contemporary context, do have this dynamic where a pastor and an artist are seen by at least one of those two parties as being on fairly far apart on opposite sides of a divide. And just as the corporate worship context is the one time when in theory everyone's paying attention and focusing on doing that one act, it's also the time when an artist can do the same with their creative work, put something to work in the service of the liturgy, as you were saying, John. With that perceived divide, the dynamic that we often run across in different churches is you have churches with older traditions with a more diverse set of options that aren't quite what, sure what to do with newer things in some cases. And then churches that cut themselves off from all of that, as you were suggesting, who have a very short list of art forms they know what to do with and perhaps see themselves as more open-minded, but the list is shorter. And so there are more artists in those churches that are underappreciated. Is this a Reformation thing? No, this has been something that, I mean, the churches struggle with this. The early church struggled with this. The medieval church struggled with this. It's a perennial question, and it ultimately is the question of iconodualism and iconoclasm. The reason that that, that fight was so important in church history is because we're going to keep having it over and over again. Like all heresies, there's a cyclical nature to it where it's representative of an archetypal way to get the faith wrong. And it's not just straightforward that the iconoclasts are just wrong and the iconodos are just right. So when you um, say iconoclast, just for... So you're so someone who wants to destroy the images, right? And so for an iconoclast, images um, are, they are a distraction at best and idolatry at worst. And so they want to remove images, and, but it can be taken more broadly for any art form, right? Oh, that, that form of music is a distraction or an idol or, or whatever the case may be. Um, whereas the account of duels are the ones who want to say, no, God became incarnate, therefore he is imageable, and so we want to image God. Now, it has to be said that the account of duels won the battle, and yet iconoclasm didn't go away. And the Reformation was just another cycle of the same battle. But even between the ninth century and the Reformation, there were more flare-ups. And I think we need to learn from this is that the use of images or art in the broader sense is allowable and desirable in Christian worship. But there are important caveats that um, an unquenchable presence of iconoclasm reminds us of. And there are limitations. This is a bit of what Hans was getting at. I always find that when I disagree with Hans, it's like I don't, really disagree with what he's on about, but I disagree with how he said it. Um, and you have such a lovely way of putting it, Julius. Well, this is one of those times because I don't actually think that opposing performance to worship or any, anything else is actually going to be the right way to go about it. Uh, as a musician myself, who uh, actually most of the music I do these days is for church. Um, I don't do much outside of church in this season of my life. And I don't think about it in terms of, well, this isn't performance. This is serving the corporate worship. I think about it as this performance needs to serve the public worship. And so it's not that I can't perform in church. I have to do something. I don't even know what that would be. It's about how I'm doing performance and what am I performing for? Right? Am I performing to bring glory to myself or to bring glory to God? And so one of the ways that I think about this in praying, or we as a music team think about it in praying before the service is we want to play excellently to God, as the psalmist says but we don't want to become a distraction. And when we do that well, people notice what we do. And they come up to us afterwards and say, that was so beautiful what you did. But they don't say, wow, you're such a great musician. You're wonderful. What they say was, you really facilitated my worship. You're here. Right. And I think that's what we're going after. I know Hans doesn't disagree with this at all. No, I completely yeah. agree with that. It's a great way of putting it, better way of putting it. And it also illustrates, I think, the way that you put it, that analogously similar criteria 
can be asked of the preacher, yeah. right? The way in which the preacher performs in your words in the pulpit mm-hmm. needs to fulfill certain criteria in order to lead people into the life of God. I also agree with Junius on the notion that it's not just the Reformation, but that that is an iteration of a number. You know, you can think of the Cistercians, you can think of the 8th century and so on. But I do think for our context, and I suspect that Junius would agree, but in our context, of course, it is the Reformation that has affected us hugely in terms of how we deal also with the arts and with art in general in connection with worship. And because it is in large part in our context, I think a Reformation problem, it's indispensable, it seems to me, to regain an appreciation for tradition in order for the arts to function well in our midst. If you reduce for a long period of time, as we have in the Reformation, if you reduce for a long time the liturgy to mostly, perhaps in many ways, almost solely the preaching of the word, the sermon, you're not just going to disaffect artists, which is one thing, one particular problem, but you actually no longer have theological tools, quote-unquote, as a community and as a tradition by which to adjudicate what to do and what not to do in the worship service in connection with the arts. That's a huge problem. That's why I said earlier this restriction is a good thing. Tradition is a form of restriction, right? Tradition hands on certain things and it does not hand on other things. And tradition is in some sense inevitable. We all have a tradition. But the beautiful thing about tradition is that you don't constantly have to reinvent the wheel and ask the question, what can we do about X? What can we do about Y? Is this allowed? Is that allowed? The interminable conflicts that that creates is, I think, paralyzing. And to many of you as artists, it will be obvious that that is paralyzing. And I think that sine qua non for dealing with that is to stand within a tradition that hands certain things down to us doesn't resolve all the questions. Still, questions will be asked about what is and what is not suitable. But there are, in that case, questions that function within a certain tradition that has limits around it, that set guidelines for it. But if you have a tradition that says it's the preaching of the word preceded by a bunch of songs that we sing, it's very difficult, I think, to ask the question, how does art function here? Going further than that, it's also another thing that we lose is the attractiveness of our witness outside of the church, right? I mean, if what the faith looks like is a stripped-down building singing fifth-rate music half-heartedly, why would I want to do that? Yeah, so it doesn't attract others to what we do. It doesn't make the gospel look like good news. And it also shrivels the souls of the parishioners. Beauty expands our soul. And when we take beauty away from people, souls begin to shrivel. In this sense, is the Reformation a, I grew up in a non-denominational Bible church uh, kind of context, and that my church's approach to art would probably have been condemned by most of the mainstream reformers, Luther, Melanchthon, Calvin, Cranmer, probably would all have looked at the way my church approached art and said, whoa, they went way too far. They cut out way too much. Most of the church environments I've seen where art is stripped out to that kind of level are more heirs to later quote unquote reformers that those early reformers hated. Um, just to throw that out there. But having said that, is the reformation a problem for just Protestants? One of the things that I notice is 
yes, you have churches that operate the way that you just described, Junius, but you also have, I mean, I've been to Catholic churches where they don't sing any songs newer than 500 years old, because how many beautiful Catholic churches are there in America that aren't an imitation of an art form from at least 500 years ago that hasn't been critically engaged since it's a copy. And in my own Anglican context, there are churches where the 1920s and 30s are the cutoff. And tradition isn't really tradition, it's reenactment. So it seems like almost no matter, no matter which church I poke my head into, something died at some point back there, and we're all trying to wrestle with the effects of it. I'm a slow processor. I think I want to go back to your previous question. <laughs> but also, be, I realize the question of the Reformation, that's huge. And I need a smaller crowd. That's a nuanced question. We can't simply bash you know, the Reformation. So I'm just saying that. But I still want to go back. So keep that question up. Junius start, spoke about music and as a musician, you're, and then you turned to preaching. I think I want to say just one thing about the visual arts themselves. And that is, I have this suspicion often that, here I'll say, I bet none of you visual artists in this room are in fact egocentric in your art or nowhere near narcissistic. Okay, so I'm assuming that. But I think that the notion of the free-spirited artist who has to operate outside of traditional boundaries, which is a matter, it came with romanticism. It's the last couple of centuries. I still wonder sometimes, and you all contest this, whether it's the only way of understanding the artist that has common currency even now. And it often, I think, forces even artists of Christian faith who wish their art to be of, of humble and important service to the church, we still think in terms of, I'm the artist. And a blunt way of saying this, I just have a suspicion that we should stop speaking so much about the artist and more about the work that the artist does. So it's that work that has a strong, important place in the worship of the church, the liturgy, and the life of the church. And I think that doesn't belittle the artist. In fact, it strengthens the importance of the thing made and the thing to which the artist is answerable. I like that word. Uh, George Steiner uses that often. You know, being answerable to something or to someone doesn't mean that you're a slave to it. It means you're responsible for doing the work that you have been given to do. It has a different mm -hmm. set. So I like the word being answerable to something. So I'm saying when we can understand that the artist, just as the musician in a certain way needs to disappear as the personality who's a really great French horn player, because the piece that the ensemble or the orchestra is playing, it's got to have the harmony among all elements so that it's not sticking out in different ways. We say the same thing, of course, of a choir. We don't want someone to stick out because then we're listening to that person and not the entirety of the harmony. I'm trying to use your... And I think the same thing applies with the arts and those who make the arts. So, But I think you're saying something similar about the preacher. The, and it may be, here's my, in a sense, a kind of criticism of the Reformation, but I don't mean it that way. The Catholic tradition, I use that uh, broadly speaking, that the sermon, actually, 
mainly the arc, the trajectory, you all know this, of the mass is towards the Eucharist, and there is the first liturgy of the word. But the homily is where the pastor, the preacher, is charged with making clear that everyone understood the connections between the lectionary, how the Old Testament comment, they all lead. The Psalms is as your three ways of understanding uh, Jesus. And it all leads up to the gospel. So often in that tradition, which again, I value, is that the homilist is beholden to articulating the connective linkages between all aspects of the lectionary so that we don't miss it because they all point to Christ. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's exactly okay. right. Now, when we privilege the sermon and the sermon maker, and when that becomes the very telos of the service, you know, I hate, I feel awkward saying these things because we may have preachers in our midst who treat so seriously their giving of the sermon as the central, you know, action of that service. So I don't wish to be demeaning. I'm speaking more generally that that then by nature focuses our attention on the one dreaming up the sermon, even with strong exegetical knowledge behind it. And that then, I'm adding to your comments, it tends to treat the preacher as the person rather than as the vessel of our understanding. So I, romantic genius. You're yeah, about. exactly. So I yeah. talked too long there, but there. That's great. So pastors and artists, you're all in the same book. Yeah, that is what I want to say. Everyone is answerable to the word and the Christ to whom the word is bearing testimony. I want to pull out a thread that is running through your questions and the ways that we've been responding to them, which is this thread of tradition and the ways in which tradition provides norms from which we cannot, we do not lightly depart. And any departure has to be very cognizant of the place from which it's departing. And in a sense, able to give an account of its relationship to that departure point, precisely because tradition is not just something we receive as our possession. It's something that we're going to be charged with handing on as well. Right. The notion of handing on what is by its nature is something that's going to keep going beyond any particular person who's got possession of it. So it's another reason why we can't be flippant with tradition, because we have a responsibility to all those who came before and above all the, the blood of the martyrs and confessors. And there's a lot of thought happening in Catholic theological circles these days about the notion of tradition and what that means for a variety of reasons. But a lot of very good work being done by very conservative Catholic theologians about the fact that tradition as the Catholics understand it, has always had as one of its features innovation. That not just how you hand on what you receive, but even how you receive what is offered to you requires innovation. And you've, we've all seen this in gift giving, right? There are various ways to receive a gift and you can honor the gift giver more or less in the way that you receive that gift. Um, I think this is, all, this is very important for artists to think about. And I want to put it in this, and, and pastors, and I want to put it in this framework. What tradition does for us a blessing is it provides the finitude that we need to do anything at all. And I'm thinking here of um, Igor Stravinsky's lectures at Harvard, which have been published in a book called The Poetics of Music in the Form of Six Lessons. Really, really good book. Um, if you haven't looked at it and you're an artist, go look at it. You'll love it. <laughs> One of the things he talks about is his composition process. And he says when he sits down to write a new piece of music, he realizes that literally anything is possible. He can write any note or whatever, anything he wants to do, and nothing is wrong at that point. And that infinitude, as he describes it, is paralyzing. 
He's terrified of it. It's dizzying and he can't be creative and he can't do anything because he doesn't have any space for this work. And then he describes, how do I come back from that? What comforts me, which and what enables me to calm down and make those first decisions that get me going is to know that I have the 12 notes of the chromatic scale. To know that I've got a combination of rhythms and harmonies based on that that is so rich that all the genius of humanity will never exhaust it. And he says that gives him the courage to then make those first decisions and pick a key. That's the first thing he's got to do. He's just got to make something concrete and finite for himself to create more and more structure. And so he says that, and this is the really key point, he says the finitude of the Western musical tradition he's working in marks off an infinity of creative possibilities just as vast as the infinity that terrified him when it was outside of all those strictures. This is a very countercultural truth, but it's very important. This is the, the tendency of our age, I feel, is to forget that we're creatures. Um, it's actually the original sin. Right, we, we want to be like God. We want to know everything and have all, do it all for ourselves. But we're creatures. We're finite. We can't contain everything. And tradition is a way of helping us to put that creative drive that's been put into us on the ground. We have three art galleries around the building, each of which corresponds to one of the acts that we're dealing with this weekend. In the first call for submissions, Act One. Sacred art. One submission. There were dozens of submissions for both of the other categories. And we did end up with more than one. There's some great stuff in Act One in the chapel over there. But I think there's a real challenge here in that there are a lot of artists that would love to do more work. We can talk all day tomorrow about all the different ways that art that is not used in corporate worship can be used for the good of the church. But as far as the specifically the corporate worship piece that we're talking about tonight. You've got entire art forms that are ignored in almost every tradition. So the pastors don't value them. So why would the artists learn them? There's, there's no future there. And as a result, you have artists who have pursued other visual art forms, other musical styles. Sometimes they feel that they need to shoehorn their, their particular style into church setting. The singer-songwriter who feels like I have to write praise choruses or the church won't value what I do. But in most cases, there's not even a point of connection. Megan, you do mostly landscapes. And I don't think there were a lot of churches knocking on your door saying, we know exactly what you can do with that. Um, so I think there's a conversation that needs to be had here that neither party knows how to start. <laughs> because in many cases, the pastors aren't sure, especially if you're coming from either a tradition that hasn't changed much in 500 years or a tradition that's very new and hasn't touched the arts much. The pastor's kind of wondering, all right, where do I even begin to start, start creating some openings and categories? But then on the artist side, if a pastor were to issue a call for art, and we've seen this with some of our member churches, in this particular context, there are very few artists that have been trained in an art form or an approach to art, going to back to what you said, John, yeah. that's applicable to this context. Well, I, I agree, and I think uh, it's telling, and I feel no scorn at all, uh, mm -hmm. that so few of the artists among us had submissions for that. So it's a good yeah, question I to ask yeah, why. I expect them okay. to. Uh, me neither, and that's a problem. That's what we're addressing. Or you know, maybe a positive analogy, when at least, I say Catholic tradition in general, there were the musician could turn towards a sanctus or the elements of the mass. And there's everything, all sorts of tonalities of, of emotional dispositions. There are days when 
the composer can really get cracking on in on you stay or a misery. I mean, it's a, there's a whole wealth there now. In fact, we've lost some of those, but not entirely. So I'm using as the analogy, the music that has been, has had niches that are important and respected in the worship of the church exists. But though the same thing once did in the visual arts, but they don't anymore. And I want to say, if in fact for the visual artist, well, the pastor, if this could be the case, you know, says we really need a new altarpiece for the season of Lent. Or if there are the hero, I'll say this, the saints of the church that really matter for our parish or our tradition. And we need something that, in fact, renders that person newly timely. If it could be, you know, we really need a new baptismal font. What I'm starting is a list, which I'll continue tomorrow, of all the places in the liturgy of the church where art was once called for. So every artist had that repertory in mind. So to say we want to have art for these three actions of our conference. If the visual artist had the possibility of thinking, ah, it could be this, 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 or this. You know, what am I suited for? What is moving me? You can respond to that. But without those categories of genres, you know, of elements that are defined by aspects of worship, what do you do? Because the aspects that we have nowadays are landscapes or maybe poor. I mean, it's a very limited set of possibilities. That makes sense. I don't know why. That's great. Mm-hmm. I think it's very helpful, and it's not a problem limited to artists. No. As we have done, I think, in modernity, when you separate nature from the supernatural. Well, I was what, hoping you were going to talk about yeah, this. I, I have to talk about that, right? <laughs> I have to advertise my book. So, <laughs> so if you separate nature from the supernatural, whether you're dealing with, say, the visual arts or other art forms, or whether you're dealing with the scriptures, you're going to treat them in a similar fashion. That is to say, you're going to treat them as purely natural objects. So the exegete is going to treat the scriptures as a historical object and is going to ask the question, so what did the text originally mean? What was authorial intent? As if the scriptures were just a history book and as if when we entered the pulpit, our purpose was simply to explain what the scriptures meant back then and maybe add an application to that rather than, as you just said, see how the scriptures are connected and how the readings are connected and talk about Christ. So because we've separated the natural realm from the supernatural telos, from the supernatural purpose, we're treating the biblical text as an object that we want to control in a Baconian-like fashion. And similarly, when an artist treats art as art for its own sake and does not ask the question, of how art is related ultimately to the supernatural telos of seeing God face to face, you're going to have limited art forms. When you trace art in Holland, for example, and the great masters in the 17th century, right? The skill is phenomenal. But there is a move or a movement that's happening, I think, in 17th century Dutch art with a focus on this worldly realities Scenes in a household, lots of household scenes, right? Lots of fruit scenes, lots of wide landscapes. Nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves, right? And the skill is phenomenal, again. But I think it is 
part and parcel of a movement that's taking place over the centuries through the Reformation and prior to the Reformation already, really, mm -hmm. that focuses on the here and now. And in the end, the artist is going to have the question, much like the preacher is going to have the question, how am I going to use this art in church? How is this stuff that I do even going to contribute to what we're doing in church, namely drawing people into the heavenly realities? Well, maybe some of your stuff doesn't work because you're not asking the right questions. <laughs> it's not to bash artists, right? Just like it's not to bash preachers. But all of us have to relearn that the scriptures are there for a purpose and the art is there for a purpose. And it's not for its own purely natural self. I want to make sure that everyone has a chance to get home and get some sleep before we come back bright and early tomorrow. But let me throw one more question at you to close down the evening. Does anything come to mind as far as a story from a church that you've been a part of or a, a moment in history that you're familiar with? A moment where a small step like that was taken or something that is so categorically different maybe from John the 14th century that in your book stories where I thought, oh my gosh, we could almost copy and paste that into a congregation now. There's nothing that it's going to rub up against as far as pre-existing things people get upset about. Uh, and probably everyone would, if it was done decently well, people would go home and think that was wonderful. We should do more of this. So I want to see if I can fish one nugget from each of you, not to solve the whole problem, but where might you start? Or one story that might encourage someone who wants to start? I'll give some stories tomorrow. I, this is the way I want to answer your question, and we need to be very quick. I, if it were the case that we this weekend and other people, other books to read, could crack us out, open up some boxes that are we have been stuck in because of cultural history, if we could think fresh thoughts in a new way of understanding the arts and have a big view, my response is start locally. It's got to take up, well, you know, here we are in this neighborhood. Now, how can we reach people and how can we, uh, in a way that are real people we know, and it's local, or we're dealing with our particular church building. So instead of speaking generally about liturgical art in cathedrals or churches in general, your place. So I think that will be the place. And then again, I would give examples about how everything, all the art that I want is local. And that may be the place to start. Just don't get too panicky. Just start with the community that you're a part of. So that really didn't make sense. I don't know if much way of stories. The one thing that comes to mind is my priest in our local church. We're, we're slowly but surely thinking about building a, a church of our own. And um, he has some stories of other Anglican churches that have begun to build and that look at architecture from a theocentric and Christological perspective. And the two examples that he's given me were really, really deeply encouraging to me because they asked the right theological questions about how can we make Christ present in our church. Um, if there's anything I would say in terms of how to go about any of these kinds of things, where it has to start, I think, is with that question. How do we make Christ present? So you're going to have to sit down with yeah. your pastor or priest and with your fellow artists and with other people who are even not artists at all, right? And ask, so what do you think I could do to draw us as a church more deeply into Christ? Because that's what your 
service is. And, and you, that'll be a local localized question, yeah. right? I mean, how do we make Christ present yeah. given the circumstances we have and what can we do? I mean, I substantially agree with Hans uh, again. So in my office, I have two, well, I have three paintings, but two I want to tell you about. They were both painted by my wife, who is not a painter. And they grew out of these lunches that we had when we were first dating. And she was concerned that I might not be a Christian. And... <laughs> Which is fair. Um, and so I said, well, let's, let's have lunch and I'm going to explain to you my theology. And then you can ask clarifying questions, but you can't argue. And then you can make up your own mind at the end of it. And in the course of those conversations, she came across two theological concepts she'd never heard of before. Uh, one is kenosis, the self-emptying of God. When the Philippians passed, so he was in the form of God. He did not consider a quality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And the other is theosis. There's a divinization of the human individual that happens by grace. And those two ideas were so captivating to her that even though she hadn't painted for years, she went and got some canvases and she painted these two pieces representing those two ideas. And she then presented to me and they've been in my office ever since. And I want to, that's something I think is very important and it is exactly in line with what Hans is saying. One of the things we have to do, if you're an artist, you've got to go and learn some theology. Dive into the tradition and look at the riches that are there in the theology because there's enough there to inspire you, right? A lot of times pastors, artists, parishioners, we don't know what to do in church because we don't realize how rich our tradition is. But when you start getting into the depth of things that have been said about the person of Jesus Christ over the millennia, you're going to find a lot of material there. And another way that as a parish we can help this is strengthen catechetical offerings put artists and theologians in the room together and have them talk about things, right? Um, the soul of the artist is the place where the work of art is born. And I'll talk about this quite a bit tomorrow. And so condition that location mm-hmm. to be theologically savvy and literate. Harmonious. And you'll find that there's an overflow of sacred art that comes out of that. Let's stop there. Yeah. Thank you for the plug for our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Oh. I love it. Yeah, if you're not yet listening to, we have three podcasts at the Anselm Society. If you're not yet listening to the Redeemed Imagination podcast, we are five episodes in. The next one to two will be tonight's recording. And then we're going to pick up with that podcast exactly where Junius just left it. So take your thoughts home with you, mold them over, get some rest. We'll see you bright and early in the morning. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.